My guest this week is Richard Gerver, who is, shall we say, passionate about education. And that chimes with me personally because my mother is a former teacher and she went on to become a trainer. Richard is a former school principal who wrote a book called Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today. And that chimes with me because education, of course, is the groundwork for training. And Richard is connected or was connected with one of my celebrated past guests, the late great Sir Ken Robinson, who was on the show about two years ago. Unfortunately, Ken passed away uh, in recent years. And Richard these days is someone who works with organizations like Microsoft, Google, Morgan Stanley, Visa, and so on. He's been named UK Business Speaker of the Year twice, and he's managed to make that transition from what we call primary or secondary education to what's often called tertiary or adult education. And this is really what's fascinating. So it's a great episode today. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the Training Business Podcast. This is the weekly show for people like you, people like me. Uh, If you're someone who is self-employed, if you're a consultant, a trainer, a coach, a facilitator, you work with adults, you charge for what you do, what you know, then this is the show for you. The focus of this show is on the business of you making money from your programs, from your workshops, from courses, books, keynotes, etc. Maybe you have your own expert business already. Perhaps you're thinking of leaving your job to start it. And if that is the case, this is the show for you, whether you're somewhere on that training business journey or starting it. In terms of me, I'm Mark. I'm a self-employed trainer. I'm a coach and a published author. I've been unemployed, employed, and self-employed. And this is why I do what I do. I love doing this show every single Thursday. There is a fresh episode of the show to help you wherever you are on this journey. I'd love you to find out more about the show, so please click on the follow button or the subscribe button now to be notified of great episodes as they come out. These will These are designed to help your business. Sometimes it's just you and I, or sometimes, in fact, most of the time we have guests on the show and subscribing or following us costs absolutely nothing but means the world to me and the team. It takes a couple of seconds. If you know other people who'd like to know about the show, please let them know. Otherwise, let's jump into today's episode with Richard Gerber. Richard, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be with you, Mark. Really good. So in the, in the warm-up to recording, we were talking about um, your background, and we have a, a connection or a former connection in the sense that uh, a previous guest on the show was the wonderful uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who had a, an amazing message about education and the power it has to transform. What I want to do, first of all, is to understand where you are today and how you got there. And let's begin with your background. You're a former school principal. You're now a, an amazing speaker. You, you've been named UK Business Speaker of the Year twice. You work with organizations like Deloitte, Visa, Google. Let's fill in the blanks. How'd you get from former school principal to where you are now? <laughs> I wish I could give you a conclusive answer, Mark. I think <laughs> you know the, the most common thing I would say is being in the right place at the right time, but that's that's probably a bit too glib. I mean, look, the truth is there was never a grand plan. 
Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't know about you, but certainly I came from a generation where we were almost forced into having a grand plan. Like, what are you going to yeah. do when, you, when you're 18? What university? What college? When you leave college, what, you know, what career? And then you're going to be in that career, right? For the re And then, you know, what, when are you starting your pension plan? And when are you planning to retire? All that stuff. So, of course, I, I came and I came from a very traditional, um, uh, aspirational, middle-class, London Jewish family. So, you know, if it had an ology, uh, then I was likely to be uh, lauded by my family. So the point was, that was, that was the route. I kind of threw a spanner in the works very quickly. There's a bit of a backstory, a prequel, and then it'll help people understand. I actually wanted to be an actor, which for a Northwest London middle-class Jewish boy, frankly, is unheard of, really. Um, okay. And uh, when I when I was still at school, I was 17, I went for an audition for a rep company in London, and the worst thing in my parents' eyes happened. I got in, right? And the thing was, it was just before my A-levels. So I thought I was going to be Olivier. I kind of gave up on my A-levels because I thought that was it. I didn't need any other training. I'm just going to be a, a superstar. Um, big flaw to my plan. Essentially, I was rubbish. So my a I just scraped A-levels. And to cut a very long story short, after two years of working around all sorts of different things, I, I sold the very original mobile phones when they were car batteries with a handset. Um I did a state agency for a bit. I'm never one, never get me on to talk about future trends. I got into a state agency in the 80s just as the crash in the UK a, a, a property market happened. So, you know, I got into to mobile phones just as they decided to give them away. Um, so not, not a trendsetter. Anyway, eventually found my way back to college, became an educator, which I did because I fell in love with the job. It was, mm -hmm. it was very much... Um, you know, it, it was one of those things. I remember the first time I walked into a classroom and thought, why had I never thought that this was where I belonged? You know, it was all the things I was passionate about, performance, communication, creativity, emotional interaction, all of the things I loved, really. And so I, I had, I started what has now been my first career, but I thought would be my only career. I loved it. Um, and I was again, right place, right time, climbed the ladder really very, very fast, more by accident than judgment. I mean, I, and I ended up as a school principal very young. I was in my early thirties. Um, and the only reason I got the job as a school principal, I wish I could say it was talent. Um, it wasn't, I actually walked into a, a school at the time I was working with, uh, football clubs and the government on trying to create a program to remotivate demotivated boys in reading and writing. And I went into this school to try and persuade them to be part of my project and fell in love, fell in love with it, um, applied for the job and got it, not because I had any talent, but because I was the only applicant, which I discovered afterwards. You know, one, once your ego calms down and you get over yourself and then you find out the reason you got the job, it was like, I remember the local government going, well, thank God you applied, frankly, Richard, um, because we wouldn't, I don't know what we would have done if you hadn't have done. So that's kind of, anyway, I, I took on this job again to cut a very long story short. I was, the reason I'd fallen in love with this school was there was an essence in the community. And my instinct was there's something very special here. We just need to find it because it had been a failing school for a decade. Mm. Anyway, the school, the community, I was right, the community transformed itself in a spectacular way um, in a period, over a period of, of seven years. 
And during that time, quite early on, because we, the school made some quite spectacular transformations quite quickly, and that brought us to the attention um, of very important figures nationally, political, around the education sector. Um, and so the school found itself in the he- uh, in the headlines in in the spotlight not we wasn't what we just thought we were doing our job you know um and that led doors to be open for me that I'd never anticipated because I suppose as the figurehead they wanted me to go and talk about how I'd done it which was very embarrassing because it was always about what we'd done um but uh, and that led me to as you've already mentioned meet Ken um, by accident at an education conference. And he was, I was incredibly fortunate because he, at that point, kind of took me under his wing. I think he saw something in me, um, not just as a school leader, but maybe as a, a, as something somebody who could speak around bigger issues, um, around leadership, human development, change. You know, I didn't know. I just did my job, as I said. Anyway, um, he became very close and very supportive. And eventually, after seven years of my job as a principal, and we'd had dinners many, many times, and he'd he'd often nudged me and gone, what next? You know, that you've you've got to do, you've got bigger things and you've got to, and I was procrastinating. And I'm sure this will be familiar to many of the people I hope listening, right? You know, I had a great job, but more importantly than that, I had a really good fixed salary that I could count on every month. Um, I had commitments, mortgage, family, you know, all those sorts of things. And so regularly I would procrastinate and go, Ken, that's brilliant. But frankly, I'm not Ken Robinson. And um, all I've ever known and all I've ever been prepared for is a good job. Get your head down, do the best you can, make sure the money comes in every month so you can pay the bills and maybe give yourself and your family a a bit of a holiday and look forward to the day you pay off all the pension and all, uh, sorry, all the mortgage and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was my conditioning. And over time, I suppose, very gently, having had a role model like him to be there and to keep knocking back my procrastination. You know, when you've got, for those people that that know him will know what I'm doing, when, you, when you've got Sir Ken Robinson batting away your objections, you know, and going, it'll be fine, trust me, I'll help you. Um, it got to a point where I ran out of excuses, frankly. And so um, nearly 15 years ago now, I left the school. He introduced me to people who would help me evolve my next career, which again, we might come back to because I think it's a really important thing to, to talk about connections and, and how you use them in that transition. Um, so to give some context here, I guess, yeah. for people listening who may not know it's who Sir Ken Robinson was, yeah. uh, it's only two years since he passed. He, he has, he, I think, is one of his two probably his two TED Talks are among the most popular of all times, literally in the millions of views. Mm. And without um, making a terrible job of summarizing it, he he told with, with great humor uh, his views or shared his vision for how uh, we gauge intelligence and the impact that has on or could have on society when we get education right. That's perhaps a very bad way of summarizing what he said. But no, um, I, I think I. I mean, I would I would go and, and say that he spent his entire life championing the belief that every human being had potential, mm-hmm. and it wasn't always in the most traditional and, and easiest route. Right. I prefer your version. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, but yeah, he's and for those people that have heard this and maybe we've tweaked an interest, please, please, please go and find a bit about him because. Yeah. I'm pretty much, when I'm sure you'd agree, Mark, that, that if people engage in his work, 
they'll find it life-changing. I mean, it's amazing, yes, and, and such an important message told with great humor, a, a natural comedian. So why are we talking about this? Well, because many people listening to the show right now are in the world of education. There is no shortage of people who um, are thinking of not necessarily leaving education, let's not think of that uh, in a negative way, but thinking of changing or, uh, as you've done, transitioning to a career where they've got the rudimentary skills in adult education, uh, they understand what adult learning theory is, but they've got a message that uh, can actually help the corporate world. And that's what you've done. You, you've managed to now work with, as I'm looking at the organization list here, uh, work with Morgan Stanley, Visa, TUI, and so on. So how did you then in those 15 years get from uh, leaving education to uh, crafting that message in the form of your books to now having that kind of calling card of corporate clients? I think a number of things, and and a lot of them were organic. There was mm -hmm. never a bit, you know, I, I can't pretend, Mark, to have had a grand plan. Mm -hmm. um, and also a lot of people advising and supporting and drawing out of me. I think one of the things as people moving from one sector to another, from education into a wider training or communication sphere, I think the problem is we suffer, as most people do, from believing that our skill set only works within the context of the small area in which we work. So if we're lecturing in a university or, or a college or teaching in a school or even working in adult education or training in some way, we tend to be hoodwinked into believing that what we know is only relevant in our own sector. And I do think actually all sectors are diabolical at this. And I found that out since, you know, everybody believes their problems are unique. I mean, the, the number of times I've taken a briefing call from a client, let's say in the technology sector, and they've got, oh, Richard, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to speak to us at length before you come and visit. There's, there's a number of unique factors we need to make sure you're aware of. And honestly, Mark, without giving you the game away, I'm sat there almost with a checklist going, yeah, 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 they're not unique. But anyway, Sorry. So I think that's the first thing, particularly people in education. I think what I've learned through that journey is virtually all of the issues I've been passionately, I passionately believed in, the things I've experienced, the challenges that I've faced or observed or been involved in are all pretty much generic. Um, and it's just changing the context. And so in many ways for me, there isn't a fast track. You I learn through the experience of every different group or organization I work with, because what it helps me do is recontextualize what I already believe in. And, and that's the trick, I think, in many ways. What, what people are looking for isn't for you to pretend that you know their sector or any of those things. All you need to do is recontextualize the core principles you believe in. Um, and you'll see the narratives when you meet people, you you observe, you you immerse in in different sectors, in in different organisations. And I think it's it's allowing yourself to first of all be confident enough to believe that you have something to say, that you have a skill set that is eminently transferable. You know, one of the things, particularly for people coming out of education, that I think we underestimate is as a good educator, you are an outstanding communicator, and mainly because you are a brilliant listener, 
Um, and again, those are traits we almost just take for granted, right? You're a brilliant listener. You will have high levels of emotional intelligence. You already have the ability. You know, when you think about the, the core, the core skill of an educator for me, it's not about knowing stuff, which I think is very much the, the traditional misunderstanding. I see great educators really as being like great translators. Your job, your ability is to take a concept that fundamentally might be quite complex or challenging, and you have the ability to translate it to the audience you're working with. So whether you're work, used to working with young children, teenagers, or adults, your natural ability to take a concept and translate it to the target market, to the audience, to the people that are listening is inbuilt. And so it's just about appreciating, I think, some of those, those skill sets. It's mm -hmm. about being observant then. And it's not about never narrow your experiences. You know, I found very early on um, that I was, I, I was, had the opportunity to meet loads of people. Very few of them were going to make me money or give me business, but I had the opportunity to sit and listen, to observe, to see. And actually what that did was crystallize those core theories and beliefs I had and to give them a broader context. So you're, you wrote a book in conjunction, or at least with the support of um, yeah. Sir Ken Robinson, and that gave you the leg up to to transition from being an educator in in a school as a school principal to now writing uh, 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 several books. Um, I'd love to know how you got your first clients. Did the book lead to the clients, or did the clients then inspire you to write the book? Or what, what, just just yeah. again, let's fill in the business yeah, development yeah. idea here. Sure, sure. So the first book was never supposed to be. And one thing I would say to anybody listening to this, by the way is never believe you're writing a book to make money. Um, I think in our field, people need to understand that a book basically is part of your marketing plan. Um, and I think if people go into publishing that way, it helps enormously because unless you're JK Rowling, you are not going to make money out of your, your books. Um, it's a so, lead magnet basically. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's an incredible way to grow both your brand your, well, more than your brand, your reputation, and your credibility, right? So my first book was basically just Ken had said to me when he finally convinced me to leave my school, you need to, you need to write it, pardon me, you need to write it down. You've been on an extraordinary adventure and you need people to understand it because you're leaving frontline education, but part of your legacy needs to be to help people understand how you've got to where you've got within the, your school. So it, it, I wrote it and he said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll write a forward for you. Um, eventually it, it got published and it did incredibly well. Um, whether that was ever because of the quality of the book or whether because Ken wrote the forward, I've never got to the bottom of. But what it did lead to was all of a sudden other publishers came knocking at my door. Um, I, by then, had Ken had introduced me to his speaker agent. Um, so I had an agent from day one, which again is an incredible stroke of luck because for anyone who's ever tried to get, if they're looking to go into the speaking world to get represent good representation, that can be quite challenging. Um, so I had an agent who was already booking me for corporate events and, and talk about right place, right time, Mark. Um, I, I started full time as a speaker at the point of the global financial crisis in 2007-8. 
And what was really interesting, I know, and I look back on that now and people go, oh, COVID must have been tough for you professionally. I thought, well, it was, but I've lived through a kind of uh, a business Armageddon before and I kind of feel I'll get through it somehow. But anyway, um, what was really interesting was at that time, major corporations had decided we don't want to listen to Olympic gold medal winners anymore. We don't want to listen to multimillionaire business people anymore. We need something more humane. So I was right place, right time. So my whole thing was around human leadership and how do you take communities with you and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So corporate audiences started to become, in fact, my first big corporate event, and I will never, because I get sweats now thinking about it, was heart of the financial crisis going to do a major speech for the leadership teams at the Royal Bank of Scotland in Edinburgh. I mean, <laughs> just nerve wracking. Yeah, just a bit. Anyway, um, so the things were happening in parallel, right? So I was I was going on an adventure, which was at the same time broadening my mind. I was it, it helped my confidence to see actually how turning around a school could be very powerfully linked with managing and leading change in any form of organization. The first book was doing really well. Other publishers started knocking on my door because I don't know how many people know this, but publishers across the world track all books. So they've got digital algorithms and they track sales of all sorts of books. And what they did was they saw this little book, education book from a little publisher was doing really well and was beginning to get translation and all this kind of stuff. And so a few big publishers came knocking at my door and said, have you got something else but more generic? And the thing is, I'm not one of these people that writes for the sake of it or just because I want to get a book out there. And actually, I'd become fascinated with this stuff around change and why people were so paralyzed with it. And of course, it was a great period of case study, the global financial crisis, you know, and people going, hold on, these big corporate um, advisory groups have been in and we've paid millions for change. Pre and when the it, when it hit the fan, nothing, it, it didn't help. Um, and so I went back to a couple of these publishers and pitched them the idea of a book around change. And it was picked up really, really quickly, um, actually by Random House Penguin, which was amazing to me. Um, and we got it published and it went on to be a global bestseller, um, which is that changes your life. Because And go back to the points I made before. First of all, um, your message. People suddenly were picking up my book from the shelf of, at a WH Smith at an airport or a train station. Um, they were reading the book and going, actually, there's real resonance in this. And then they were going, this guy, we, we could book him because actually he's a famous author. I was nothing of the sort. I'm a former primary school teacher from the middle of England. But because you have a book on a shelf in WH Smith's, right, suddenly... You, you can go to bed one night, nobody would know who you are. You wake up the next morning with a number one best-selling book and everyone thinks you must be somebody. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the book thing is real. I, even now, I advise people, if they can, to, to get their stuff down in a book. Some or, kind of IP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and get it out there. Because if for no other reason, when people start to look you up, they go, oh, they must be credible. Look, they've got stuff that's published, mm. whether that's virtually, digitally or physically. So let's say uh, Google bring you in, Visa bring you in, uh, Morgan Stanley bring you in. What's your typical gig? What's your typical program that you deliver for your corporate clients? 
So most of what I do is actually keynote speaking, okay. um, physical, virtual, obviously increasingly virtual mm. now, but, but physical or, or virtual. Mm. And what I do originally, they wanted me to tell my story raw and, and uncensored around how I trans, well, I said it before, how we transformed a school, right? Um, and, and increasingly now from the work, because my books have diversified as my own experiences, I write about my experiences and what I see in here. I'm not an academic. I'm certainly as far removed from a from an academic researcher as you'd ever find. I tend to tell stories of the things I see that fascinate me, that tune back into the principles I have or challenge the principles I have. And so a keynote now, they what they these people love from me is A, they love my background. They love the fact that in a way it's a unique you know, they're dealing with human resource in a whole new way now. They're looking at how they develop their people. Of course, we've got the great resignation. We've got generational shift in expectations. So all of these things are things I've learned along the way. But what they're asking me to do is basically talk about how do we manage and lead human beings? And how do we lead them through the complexity of change and uncertainty? How do we convince them that actually they have a place in this organization long term rather than just for a couple of years. Um, and so those are kind of, and how do we create a climate where people feel they can have a voice, where they can they can share ideas? And of course, so often, a lot of the time I'm talking to middle and senior leadership and managers. And all I can tell you, Mark, is I talk about the stuff I've always passionately believed in over the last 15 mm. years because of the experiences I've had, those things have been crystallized and it allows me to, to give them a, a more tangible form, I guess. So let's go, uh, conscious of time, let's go to your tips for today. And, and these are tips that you've put together very kindly for people listening, they're self-employed coaches, trainers, coaches, trainers, consultants, facilitators, people who are uh, either in teaching or not in teaching. Uh, my mother was a teacher. My Both my grandfathers were teachers, so that's in the blood. Um, but for people who are not in teaching or education, this still applies. We've, we've lots of people coming out of the corporate space to become consultants, people who deliver programs to the corporate uh, sector or even non-corporate sector. But w what are your tips today for, for self-employed coaches, trainers, consultants, I mean, I think, I mean, there are, there are three that, that I hope I can crystallize around that. Um, the first is, and I, I think they're very intrinsically linked, actually. The first is never stop thinking like a five-year-old. You know, uh, the lessons I learned from education were invaluable to me. And the most important was I was always, I always worked in schools with early years, nursery, um, kindergarten units with the youngest kids. And I would always just go and spend time in there immersing with these young people under five who are remarkable, right? They don't, they, they don't second guess themselves. If they see something that interests them, they go for it. If they want to go on an adventure, they do. Um, and, and I suppose in many ways, they've yet to been taught, they're yet to have been told that getting something wrong is bad, which then lead to my second two tips. One of the other things I think is really interesting is I do think we're almost taught out of trusting our instincts. Mm. And to me, this is a very interesting perspective because I think we're almost taught that trusting your instinct is irresponsible. It's not grown up. It's not mature. But people forget that their instincts are actually based on the raft of experiences they've had consciously and subconsciously in their lives. They are not just flights of fancy plucked from somewhere. And when I look back on my career, whether it was 
leaving school and trying to become an actor, going into teaching, becoming a head teacher when it wasn't a plan, leaving being a head teacher to become a freelancer for the first time in my life. They weren't, they weren't things that happened on the spur of the moment, but there was a deep instinctive drive that in somewhere inside of me said, this is right. And the other thing I say, to, and the other thing was the nagging thing never went away. You know, those moments of you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And again, I think people learn to suppress those where actually for me, there's a lot more processing gone on in that mm. instinct than you think. So when I finally gave into the thought of, right, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to leave my, my salary, my pension, my high profile and go to become a freelancer. It wasn't actually a flight of fancy. A lot of things had gone into place, whether I realized it and had planned for it or not, that made that decision the right one. So I think trust your instincts because they're a lot more advanced than you believe they are. Um, and the final one links both of them really, which is never be afraid of making mistakes. One of the mantras I always live by as an educator is that you learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake or the realization you don't know something or you can't do something. And again, everyone on here who's interested in training and consultancy and development will know that deep down. And I think what's really important is if you try to create an elegant and perfect strategy to allow you to transition from one world into the world, if you like, of a freelance trainer, speaker, whatever, you will never, ever create that list. You just have to know you are going to make big mistakes. There will be moments of panic, which, by the way, never go away. I still, I'm still terrified by my empty diary, you know? Um, and, and so I think people just have to, yeah, do those three things. Think a bit like a five-year-old. Give yourself the spirit of adventure. Remember, it doesn't stop because you're, you, you can walk. Trust your instincts because they're deeply informed and know you're going to make mistakes. And as we all know, as people who educate and train people, as long as you process them, learn from them and develop from them, you will be fine. And you had in that uh, instruction booklet because it was, I'm sure a lot of people have, have been told this. My mother was when she uh, left education. Um, she became a trainer, which is one of the things that inspired me. But her in-laws said, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You're giving up this pensionable job. Um, it's solid. It, it's something that's well-respected. Why would you possibly do this and go work for yourself and have those instances where you don't know what's coming in, you don't know what you're going to write next, you don't know where the next check comes from. But um, those of us who have made this leap are those of us who have found that satisfaction that I think comes from helping people to help themselves. Um, I also think, I think you're right, Mark. And I remember actually, it was my wife who is a very tough North Yorkshire woman <laughs> who went, was the one who finally cleared the way for me to make the leap. And she said something that I hope will resonate for people. Um, she said, Richard, you've spent your entire life telling young people to seize opportunity and take risks. Are you going to be a hypocrite? And actually Ooh. that was a very powerful thing to say because you know, she's right. So many of us as trainers, educators are always urging the people we're working with to take a risk, to, to seize opportunity. And, and her point was this, Richard, take the leap. If it doesn't work, my God, just imagine what you've learned from it if you decide to come back into the world of education. And it was such a powerful thing to say to me. And it helped. Yeah. Richard, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Where can people find out more about you? There's, load, there's loads of stuff out there, your books. Uh, where would you like me to direct people? 
I think the best place, the central resource for all of it, because it's all on there, is my website, which is just richardgerver.com. Perfect. <laughs> and also you've got courses on LinkedIn Learning, right? I have. Yeah, I've got two. One on smart thinking and one on mental toughness. So people can find me on the LinkedIn Learning platform too. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Richard. Thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mark. My thanks to Richard for being my guest this week. And thank you for you, for your time, for listening today. Many great podcasts out there, but you've chosen to listen to this one. And for that, I'm really grateful. If you have a suggestion or a question, please email me directly via mark at trainingbusiness.com. My team, Sam, Joe, James, and Turul. And of course, I appreciate your loyalty and your time today. I'd love you to come back again. So please click on the follow button or the subscribe button right now to be notified of great episodes. This costs nothing and takes a couple of seconds. There is a fresh episode of the podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and you can find all episodes past, present, and future over at trainingbusiness.com. That's trainingbusiness.com. Until next Thursday, see you then. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.